0: a little nervous about it. Uh, You know, whenever you're preaching prophecy, it can always be a little bit tricky. You guys can bring up the slides for me now. Um, So, you guys know we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and this week we're hitting uh, our 62nd week in the Gospel of Mark. We're coming toward the end. It's kind of starting to crescendo here. This is week 62. I've entitled this message, Hope from Tribulation. So... Last week, if you remember, we talked about Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple and uh, about how we are the new temple. We are a superior temple to the one that was destroyed, and God doesn't need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem again. We are the temple. Uh, we are the priests. Uh, this week, as we continue with this prophecy, you're going to find some pretty fascinating things. And I, I will tell you that there is, there is more disagreement over the prophecy in this particular passage and the end times than any other topic in the New Testament when it comes to what preachers say and things like that. This passage is especially controversial. And it's a troubling passage, this prophecy by Jesus. It's also prophesied in Daniel. So it's not something he just pulls out of thin air. He's actually taking something that Daniel had prophesied and bringing it to his first century church. It's a prophecy of bloody calamity and horrible tribulation. The most popular opinion on this passage among modern-day evangelicals is that this is some sort of a tribulation that is yet to come, that somehow there's going to be this situation where an Antichrist comes and he fools the world to have everyone follow him, and then at the last moment he brings calamity, but not before God's church. Christians are raptured, so to speak, and spared the worst of the tribulation. Now, me personally, I don't ascribed to this rapture theology, which frankly did not even exist till about 1830 when a man named John Darby came up with it. I used to embrace this theology, but not any longer. What I will teach you over the next two weeks is ironically now a minority opinion in the church, but before the 1830s, it was a vast majority opinion among the early church fathers. Now, my position on this passage has evolved over the years, so I am preaching from a place of humility, believe it or not. I know you might find that hard to believe. Because <clears throat> I know that there's a, there's, there's a good possibility that I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but it's possible. So I preach this with humility. In fact, it's how everyone should approach, preach, teach, or read this passage. Because even with diligent work and study, we must be humble. So you might ask, well, if it's such a controversial passage, then why bother? Why not stay away from controversial topics that don't impact the message of the gospel, hope in Jesus Christ? Well, I think you'll see how careful, systematic study of this passage provides what may be for some of you the most stunning evidence, affirmation, and encouragement about your faith in Jesus and the inerrancy and the reliability of the scriptures. Won't that be fun? So with that in mind, let's go to Mark chapter 13, verse 14 through 23. This is a continuation of Jesus' prophecy. People call this passage the Olivet Discourse. He's on the Mount of Olives, teaching the disciples after they had left the temple after two days of confrontation. And Jesus continues with his prophecy. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then he puts this quotation or this parenthesis. Let the reader understand. I'll explain why that's there later. that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you, all these things beforehand. So normally, what we do when we break down a a passage, you know, we go history, what about man, what did he do, and why and how did he do it? Then we look at the spiritual or the theology, what about God, and what, and why and how do you do it? Then we look at the personal, what are we supposed to do? Well, today, I have to reverse the first two, because since this is a continuation of prophecy, it makes sense to start with what Jesus is saying first, since he is predicting history, not reacting to it. So Jesus adds to this prophecy of the destruction of the temple with stunning, listen to me, stunning detail. And he really puts his credibility at risk. And he starts to give them signs of when all this is going to start and how they were supposed to respond to it. And he starts off with this term, abomination of desolation. That just sounds bad, right? I mean, it just sounds like, whoa, abomination of desolation. That's like what's going to happen to the Packers today in the <laughs> NFC Championship game. That's not... <clears throat> well, actually, it's a term in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. So clearly, we know this prophecy actually is a restatement. It comes directly from the book of Daniel. Here's the verse in Daniel nine twenty-seven <clears throat> In the Old Testament, where Daniel writes, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, let's close in prayer, shall we? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about the words about abomination of desolation. This is the first Greek word. Belegdama. I know I said that wrong. Detestable. Or foul thing. Detestable or foul thing. That's abomination. Then you have the second word, eremosis. It means to make something desolate or uninhabitable. Those are the two words, abomination of desolation. A detestable or foul thing that makes something desolate or uninhabitable. So in all biblical uses, this phrase, these two words, it can be rightly translated abomination of desolation, an abomination causing desolation, a specific event or condition so detestable or foul it makes something uninhabitable and devastated. That's what Jesus is saying. When the events that take place create a condition where the temple is uninhabitable or desolate, that's what he's saying. It's a term describing a condition resulting from wickedness, resulting from disobedience to God's commandments. And when he says on the wings of abomination, in Daniel, when he says that, he's meaning along with. Or after the abominations, on the wings of abominations, he says, when the abominations come and make the place desolate, that's what it's meaning. That's what this phrase means. And many assume that this is just sort of like a Gentile abomination. Some have read this, but we know that Jesus describes what the Jewish elites had been doing in the temple was, in fact, an abomination. Matter of fact, he called it that, remember? My house will be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves talked about what they were doing to widows and and how they had destroyed his house and corrupted it. So many assume that when Jesus says the abomination of desolation, that he's not talking about Jews. He's talking about when a Gentile force would come in. But either way, and I'll get to that more in just a moment, but either way, what we know is that it is a prophecy, abomination of desolation of God's final judgment on Israel and its holy temple which had since long been uninhabitable by God. Am I right? God was no longer in the temple. He was in Jesus. Because the temple was no longer a place where he could live because it had become desolate through abomination. So this abomination of desolation, when you read that, don't think of it as an event. It's less of an event, and it's more of a resulting condition that Jesus is predicting. Starting with the Jews, the abomination led to a desolation a judgment, they have taken place of God's presence, this temple, and they turned it into an abomination that has become uninhabitable by God. And Jesus says, when this condition occurs, when the temple is no longer inhabitable because of the abomination that leaves it desolate, I want you to get out fast. When you see the invasion of Rome start is what he's saying, get out of Judea. Quickly, head for the wilderness, leave Judea, leave Jerusalem. He combines this, and I'll give you more information on that on the historical aspect later. But he combines this directive with an extreme sense of urgency by using several very descriptive images. He says, if you're farming in the fields, it is so crucial that you watch for these signs that when you see it happens, don't go home from the fields and pack. Just leave. It's not worth it. If you're on your roof of your house and you begin to see these things begin to take place, don't go back through your house and get things and leave. Leave down the back steps of the house and get out of the city immediately. Just go. If you're a woman who's late in pregnancy, you would be in peril because you would be slowed in your escape. He's using imagery here, allegory, pictures. He says, pray that when it does happen, that it's not in winter, which in Israel would be the rainy season, because that bad weather will make travel much more difficult and much slower. See, what he's doing is he's communicating urgency through these incredibly graphic images. And Christians, he's saying, you need to watch carefully. Be on guard, because when this abomination of desolation occurs, it's all going to start. You better move fast. And then he explains why they better move fast. He says, look, there's going to be terrible suffering. He continues his urgent language with dire consequences for those who fail to heed his warnings. He says, they will suffer. He says, those who do not heed my warnings, they will suffer the worst carnage the nation of Israel, Israel as a nation, not Israel as a people, but Israel as a nation has ever or will ever experience. He says, the streets of Jerusalem... And the temple compound itself will be filled with suffering and death and bloodshed. Jesus calls it the worst the world. And I put that in quotes because I'll explain that in a minute. He says it's the worst the world will ever see or has ever seen. And the word world is meaning that region, that known world at the time, namely Israel and Judea. He says the carnage will be so bad... That God would hasten the fall of Jerusalem, make it happen quicker than it normally would, hasten the fall of the temple just so the war could be cut short. And why? See, this is huge, right? It explains it's not Rome that is judging Israel, but God himself is using Rome to judge. He says God cuts short the war. In other words, he helps Rome win to preserve his elect, the church, from the carnage that would continue if the battle raged on. In other words, if Rome kept having to fight, they would expand their military presence and go further out into the region and kill anyone and everyone that was not part of the Roman Empire. It's a final, almost political warning. He says, do not follow the false claims of those who say they are the military messiah. Do you remember? That's what the disciples wanted Jesus to be. Do you remember that? He says, others are going to come and try to claim to be that. And they might even do miracles. Do not follow them. Don't follow these military messiahs, these people who say they are the Christ. He says they are all frauds. This is such an important warning, church, because up to this point, while they were looking for this type of messiah, Jesus says, when I'm gone, don't fall for if somebody else says they are. These false messiahs, he says, would be so convincing that they can save Israel from Rome. It will be very tempting, he says, even for the elect. In other words, Christians. To believe them. He says, watch out for these signs, church. And when you see them, head for the hills. Get out. Don't follow these false messiahs back to Jerusalem for the fight. Because they're going to die. It's clear this prophecy is a warning. Right? I mean, clearly it's a warning. But what's the purpose? It's to protect his church. And it makes sense, right? Because the first thing Satan will want to do once Jesus is gone is what? Crush the church in its infancy. So that's the spiritual. Normally do the history first, but today you can see why we had to do the spiritual. See all the details that he puts in there? Well, watch this. This is amazing. Let's talk about the history. Jesus was right. See, this prophecy came true, and let me tell you something. I don't care if you're the most fierce Jesus critic out there. These prophecies... All the details from Rome and everything came true with undeniable, wholly verifiable, historical accuracy. It's one of the most stunning predictions in human history. 37 years later, it all took place. Once again, we see why historical context of Scripture is so important, right? If you just read this without understanding the history, you'd have no clue. You'd be waiting for an apocalypse. See, we must read history and understand it in the eschatological language of Jewish people. See, Jesus' prophecy today cannot be understood without first understanding within the context of the end times of the nation of Israel. And it all took place, as I said, around 35 to 40 years after Jesus' prediction. Imagine the bone-chilling reality of first-century Christian believers when they begin to see, oh my gosh, All the stuff the disciples have been telling everyone about for 30 years, it's coming true. Can you imagine the chills they got? And what we see happen is this Jewish-Roman war, which, by the way, cannot be denied. It definitely happened. Jewish history considers, this is interesting, right? The Jewish history considers this Greek emperor, Antiochus Epiphanes, that he was the abomination of desolation. That happened in 186 B.C., you know, about 200 years before Christ. What happened was he invaded Jerusalem, he went into the temple, he set up an image of himself, and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Well, a Jew would consider that definitely an abomination, And later what we know what happened is the Jews, under the leadership of the Maccabees, came back. They defeated Greece, kicked them out of the city, and took back Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple again. That's the temple that Jesus has been in this whole time, talking and teaching. The problem is many Christians believe this was the abomination of desolation as well. But that can't be what Jesus is referring to. That happened 200 years before his prophecy. So just, if you ever hear that, the abomination of desolation, somebody came in, get that out of your head. It is not what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, with the pig on the altar. It's not that. This is something different, a new condition, a new event. However, what we do know is this. In 70 AD, a Roman general named Titus laid siege on Jerusalem to crush a Jewish revolt And that actually, that historical event, fits perfectly if the details line up, right? Well, do the details line up? Well, we'll see. Now, all I'm about to teach you in this historical section is verified by both Roman and Jewish historical sources. Dozens and dozens of them. I don't even have to use scripture to verify what happened. Between 66 AD and 70 AD, roughly, ironically, three and a half years. So in 66 AD, there were rebel factions led by some that claimed to be messiahs, military messiahs, that took control of Jerusalem. They kicked Rome out, and they set up their own provisional government. This had to be what Jehovah was promising about the Messiah, right? You can see why Jews would be so excited. We have defeated Rome. We've taken our city back. Their patriotism is running high. So that was about 66 AD, and then Nero doesn't like that. So what does Nero do? He causes carnage in Jerusalem. He sends, the first thing that happens, the first general he sends, is this guy named Vespasian, starting a a three-and-a-half-year campaign. Note that, by the way, three-and-a-half years, half of seven. He sends a fighting force, forcing most Jews, as they run from fear, from this invading... army that's coming into Judea, they all run to Jerusalem. See, in the ancient world, what would happen is when your country was invaded by an outside force, when they entered the region, all the people would flee to the city stronghold for safety. And that would be where? Jerusalem. But Jesus told his disciples, no, 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 no. Don't do what everybody does. Do the exact opposite. When you see Roman forces enter the region, don't go to Jerusalem. That's where everybody else is going to go, and they're going to die. And as many Jews fled to Jerusalem for safety, which is verified, by the way, by Josephus and Eusebius and a lot of other people. And they went, by the way, this happened right at the timing of Passover. So the city is bursting at the seams for people fleeing war and coming to worship in the temple. There are over a million people in Jerusalem at this particular moment. And he begins his siege on Jerusalem. It lasts for four and a half months. There's starvation, there's bloodshed, there's famine, and there's even within the walls infighting as people are starting to see, you know, this this holding up in Jerusalem thing's not going to work. They wanted to leave. A group called the Zealots forced everyone to stay because they believed they were going to defeat Rome. So now there's fighting within, and they wanted to leave their inside. The Zealots won't let them, but Titus is on the outside. If they try to leave, he's going to kill them. So there's over a million Jews trapped. Then three days before Passover, on on a day called B'Av, which is a day of fasting, in 70 AD, Titus enters the temple. By the way, the same day the Greeks invaded it in 186 BC. Isn't that fascinating? And Jesus calls it the bloodiest, carnage-filled moment in Israel's history as a nation. It was truly apocalyptic for those in the city. And the famous Pharisee historian Josephus, who wasn't a Christian, had no interest in supporting Jesus, gives first-hand account of what happened in Jerusalem's fall, saying over 1.1 million Jews were killed. They suffered slaughter. They suffered salvation, enslavement, the destruction of all their sacred religious and civil institutions. But Josephus also tells us that many Christians were spared. While both Romans and Jews all suffered in the battle... Josephus records another stunning fact about these followers of Jesus. He says, for some reason, they all fled Judea and Jerusalem when they saw the Romans coming. Once Vespasian had entered Judea three and a half years earlier, they began to leave the city, avoiding all the path of destruction between Rome and Jerusalem. And and Josephus says virtually all first century Christians escaped this well-known war. They heeded Jesus' often-repeated warning from 37 years later. Josephus is a devout Jewish Roman historian. He has no interest in trying to glorify a prophecy of Jesus. He's just recording history. He's considered a reliable source by many secular and religious sources. Then later on, in the 4th century B.C., there was a guy named Eusebius. He is a church historian. He also recalls what happened as people were passing history down. The whole body, however, talking about the church, of the church at Jerusalem, having been commanded by divine revelation, given to men, approved piety there before the war, removed from the city, and dwelt at certain towns beyond the Jordan. Christians had been taught by the disciples to watch carefully for these signs recorded in Matthew, Mark 13, and in Luke it was, in fact, this story of the abomination of desolation and leave and get out of Jerusalem and all those things, it was, in fact, one of the most important core teachings of the disciples in every setting when they got together. As a matter of fact, you will read dozens of times in the New Testament, most of which was written before 70 A.D., the time is near, the time is at hand, the time is coming, it's almost here, keep watch, what were they talking about, or Mark 13? the abomination of desolation, and finding out when is it time to leave the city. Those references are all over the New Testament. The first century church lived in anticipation of these events. And that's why Mark said, remember I told you earlier, he said in parentheses, let the reader understand. That's why he's saying, listen, for those of you reading this, after I wrote it, before it happens, take heed. Do not skip over this section. Don't speed read it. Read it carefully. Church, these are undeniable historic events. Every detail that I just shared with you has been verified by multiple Jewish, Roman, and Christian sources. It's incontrovertible that Vespasian and Titus' invasions are, in fact, direct, complete fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Mark 13. No critic nowhere anywhere can offer any evidence otherwise, at least not with with any credibility. Isn't that fascinating? This is one of the most stunning miracles of Jesus and all of his ministry. It's one of the reasons we can have such confidence. So let's look at the personal section today. I just gave you a fire hose of information, I know. It's a lot, but I hope you're tracking with me. Let's talk about the personal. What are we waiting for? So this was my uh, Sunday sermon preview this week on social media. Uh, I didn't put it up there. Sorry, I'll just read it to you. The timing of future tribulation is irrelevant. God's purpose behind it is all that really matters. So let's talk about the tribulation. So since all this clearly originates in Daniel, I've laid that out for you. Many evangelicals do interpret this prophecy as a future tribulation. They focus on counting those 70 weeks in Daniel, trying to calculate future timelines. They could be right. Who knows? But first, for them to be right, Jerusalem would have to once again be the world religious center. And it would have to be some sort of a fortress, a military fortress under siege from the biggest armies in the world. And all that is doubtful since none of those are true today. And since none of those are true today, it removes the idea of the imminency of Christ's language. He says this can happen at any moment. You know what else Christ says can happen at any moment? His future return, which we will discuss, by the way, next week. And so if you believe that this tribulation could take place at any moment, you've got a problem because the conditions in Jerusalem don't set up for it. It takes away the threat. Threat's not the right word, but the the expectation of an imminent return of Jesus, which we truly believe in. In my opinion, the New Testament doesn't point to the tribulation, the one that many people have come to believe, where you have this suffering and all that stuff, and then the rapture before. I believe it's just referring to that tribulation. Do you see the difference? It's not the tribulation. It's that tribulation. In fact, there are many tribulations tribulations all throughout the New Testament. Did you know the specific word tribulation occurs 33 times in the New Testament alone? Here's one of them in Acts chapter 14, 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith. This is before all this happened, by the way. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The problem is, in the NIV, for example, one of the reasons... The NIV is a good translation, but we don't use it here, and here's one of the reasons. The NIV uses the word tribulation, translates the word tribulation one time. Well, they should have used it 33 times, but for effect, they used it once. They use other words like suffering and trials and the rest of it, but it's this Greek word, tribulation. It seems to me it's undeniably clear that Jesus' reference to a great tribulation already happened. Historically, spiritually, in 70 A.D. And you know what was great about that? The church, because they listened to Jesus' words, was ready. (laughs) So let's talk about our preservation. So what is our takeaway from all this? Was it just a history lesson? No, our, our, our takeaway is that you can trust Jesus to do what he said he's going to do. Because he's clearly an authority. See, the timing of this event wasn't Jesus' main purpose. You understand that. What was the purpose of this prophecy? It was to preserve his elect. That's the purpose of the Olivet Discourse. He wanted to preserve the first century church so it could become the second century church and the third century church and the church of 2021. We know this because in that prophecy, he makes the statement. He says it's going to be limited in time and duration. Why? To protect the elect. That is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise in John chapter 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, even Rome. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. This is the most extraordinary Stunning prediction in all of human history. And it was made by Jesus. Our Jesus. And it is so precise. And it is so clear. Verified by Jewish and Roman sources outside of the church. Even the fiercest Jesus critic cannot with any rationality deny it. Knowing this. All the history and everything that I've laid out for you, knowing this, transforms today's passage from ominous, dire warning to historic, glorious affirmation of our faith. Now, some preachers will try to take this warning about tribulation and fearing it, so you will be motivated to choose Christ. You better get right. Tribulation's coming. No. He made the choice. We are the elect. He says that four times. He called you and me, saved us, made us his elect, and he will not allow any tribulation to reverse that ever. Fear of apocalypse isn't nearly to me as encouraging for my faith as this stunning proof of historical accuracy of his sovereignty. How about you? I mean, it's bone-chilly. And I could try... You know, I was thinking all week, how do I want to close this? How can I make sure that the church gets the point that I'm trying to say that that this is about affirmation that Jesus is going to preserve his church, preserve the elect? And I could try to come up with and close with a description of the hope that we can derive from this. But Paul wrote something about nine years before all this took place. He wrote something about 57 A.D., that does far better than I could ever do. Because you know, Paul would be one of these people that was living in anticipation of this abomination of desolation, the invasion of Rome and warning the church to get out while everybody else runs to Jerusalem. You guys run the opposite direction and you'll be saved. And since now you know how it all played out in the first century, Paul's words come alive for us with incredible inspiration like never before. You ready? It's a great passage in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, in other words, pain and anguish. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, abomination, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, tribulation. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. I call that homesickness. The redemption of our bodies, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what ha- for, wh- for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. <clears throat> then he goes on and he says, For I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He says, Shall war? Nope. Famine? Nope. Destruction? Nope, he says, no, in all things we are more than what? Conquerors through him who loved us. He is talking about Mark 13. Isn't that cool? So church, if the first century Jewish Christians could survive this type of massive apocalypse, I think 21st century Christians will also be able to survive anything the world can throw at us because it is very clear, our Jesus is in complete control. Dear Jesus, thank you that you give us words of prophecy that have been undeniably fulfilled and inspire us to trust you even more. You give us no reason to doubt you Only reasons to believe and to embrace. And Father, as we look back on on how you preserve this this, this fragile, gentle, birthing, first century church, we have tremendous confidence in that same power you displayed there to protect us. And know that no one, no tribulation, no trial, no human can pluck us out of your hand. We thank you for that comfort in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these are difficult passages. We have one more on this prophetic passage next week on the return of Jesus. I think you're going to find that fascinating. But I hope this was, in some ways, and I know I gave you a lot of information, but I hope it was an encouragement and an affirmation to you. We love you guys. We're so thankful that you're here today. If you need anything during this week, let us know. We got your back. Have a great week.